Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a very exciting time. I think the you know national organizations and a lot of the state and local organizations are, are really keyed up to do some great things right now. There, there's a lot of lot of energy, and a lot of it's really positive. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm honored to be your host during this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, March 26, 2021. And in this week's episode, I present a fascinating policy discussion I recently had with Ken McLeod, policy director at the League of American Bicyclists. Ken and I address the quickly changing policy landscape at the federal, state, and local levels, and we discuss the fact that we are at a critical moment in time to change one of the most influential street design manuals, the MUTCD. But first, before we dive into those discussions, please allow me a moment to recognize that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. Thank you all so very much. I simply couldn't do this without your amazing support. And for those of you out there in a financial position to make a contribution, and honestly, any amount really helps, please head over to my website at activetowns, that's plural, .org, and then click on that blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. For your convenience, there are links in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. One final thing before we get started, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. These two simple actions do help with the visibility of the podcast. Thanks. Okay, let's get this conversation with Ken rolling. Ken, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Hey, first off, thank you so much for taking time to chat. I know it's been a, a crazy uh, couple of weeks. You just finished up the summit and and all that. And uh, we're going to talk about some policy issues and some other cool stuff that you're involved with there at the league. But, you know, to start us off, tell us a little bit about your background. So I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, Washington, and then uh, came to the East Coast for law school, where I went to William & Mary Law School and really joined the League of American Bicyclists right out of law school. And I've, it's just been a joy to find myself in bike advocacy since then. Cool, cool. And there's a little bit of Southern California in there, too. You were at Pomona College, right? I, I was. I had four great years at Pomona College, played football and rugby. Great school. Absolutely loved it. Um, if, if anyone has the opportunity to go to the Claremont Colleges, any of the, the five C's in the undergrad system, I, I fully recommend it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's I, I know about, uh, you know, the, the Claremont Colleges and, and, and all of that because uh, my family uh, in the 1950s moved from basically the downtown Los Angeles area out to Glendora along, you know, the, that 210 corridor there. And, uh, and some of my family members, you know, I, I think even we, we had a, f uh, a business that was based in Pomona. And so uh, I'm very, very familiar with all of that. I ended up going to, to USC for my undergrad in, in downtown Los Angeles. But uh, so you spent four years in Southern California and then you made it to the East Coast for, for graduate school. And it sounds like you never left. <laughs> Yeah, I'm still in Virginia. Um, I was up in D.C. for, uh, I guess, seven years. Um, and then two years ago, pre-pandemic, uh, moved to Roanoke, Virginia and started working mostly remotely. Roanoke got an Amtrak line uh, a few years back, uh, but within the last decade. And that really made it possible for me to move outside of D.C. proper, but be able to go up to D.C. really easily without using a car and participate in things like congressional briefings. Got it. Got it. Now, what uh, what amount of time commitment is that to make that commute? Um, it's about a five hour train ride. The, the train leaves at six in the morning and you get to D.C. at 11. Um, and then I, I usually hop on bike share to the league office and be at the league office a little before noon. OK. And then the there, there's only two trips a, a day. So the, the train back to Roanoke is at 4 p.m. Um, so it's, it's not a great one day trip, 
Uh, but it's totally fine as a two-day trip. I've got some good friends up in the D.C. area that I usually try to stay with. Got it. And that you can crash with and, and make that possible. Yeah, got it. So, uh, gosh, so, so you're an attorney. So why bikes? Why the league? Well, for, for me, I was graduating law school and I did not have a job lined up. So we had a public service fellowship program, which would give you a stipend if you could find a nonprofit that would allow you to work for them. And I had started biking in law school because when I drove from Seattle to Williamsburg, Virginia, my Jeep Grand Cherokee broke down twice and I could never quite get it to pass Virginia inspection tests, um, which inspection tests were not a thing in, in Washington state in the same way. Um, so I started biking a lot, got into it, was doing it for all my grocery trips and that type of thing. And so it made me think like about bike laws and, and kind of bike advocacy a little bit, but I still wasn't quite sure what it was. So I was kind of thinking as a lawyer and thinking, I don't see resources on bike laws that kind of go across states. So I pitched that concept to the league and maybe also the Alliance for Biking and Walking, because uh, they were both in D.C., which is where I thought I wanted to be as a lawyer. And I started working with them under the Public Service Fellowship Program of my school. And then right around the time that I passed the bar in Virginia and, and got that uh, notification in the fall, the league had a spot open up on their staff. And I, I decided, you know, what? I've really liked my time here. Uh, let's let's keep this going. And that was about nine years ago. Wow. There you go. And the rest is history. So actually you were an accidental utilitarian cyclist. Yeah. You know, I, I'd, I'd used that the paths in the Seattle area after I went back to Seattle, after graduating uh, from Pomona, like the Burt Gilman trail was, was a great resource to have there, but I hadn't used it for utilitarian reasons until my, my car didn't really work and it didn't seem worth it to fix it. And Williamsburg was bikeable enough. Not great. Still probably not great. All right. So one of the things that you'd mentioned there was the Alliance. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Alliance for those people in the audience that uh, I'm sure some of them remember, but many of them I'm, I'm sure are, are new to the uh, active mobility and active transportation advocacy work. And so they may not know about the Alliance. Yeah, so when, when I got hired to the league back in 2012, I was hired to the advocacy, advocacy advanced team, which was a joint project of the Alliance for Biking and Walking and the League of American Bicyclists. And so the Alliance for Biking and Walking was this group of ad, advocacy groups that really was about providing resources to bicycle and pedestrian ad, advocacy groups to help them have better campaigns, um, help them do kind of leadership training and that kind of thing. So the advocacy advance model was to kind of take the alliances group capacity building strengths and take the league's federal policy strengths and kind of bring them together to, to help advocates better access federal funding. And so the alliance, I was able to go to one leadership retreat, which was its, I think every other year, big annual gathering of bicycle and pedestrian advocates, uh, usually at a location that allowed us room to roam and walk and bike and kind of hang out and, and learn from each other in a very relaxed couple day environment. Yeah, me too. I, I made it to one as well. I, I was on the Queen Mary. Did you make that one or were you at the Pittsburgh one? I was at the Pittsburgh one. At a, it was like a Christian Orthodox uh, summer camp. Right. Yeah. Um, and with um, Jeff Miller and Bridget O'Keen and Christy Kwan and Elliot Caldwell, who's now at Georgia Bikes, and a, a lot of other great people that I, I'm probably forgetting. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we lost the Alliance, so the Alliance is no longer around. Uh, Jeff Miller is around, though. He, he does a, a DC concierge a bicycle concierge there in the D.C. area. So I'll be sure to include a link to Jeff and his uh, really, really cool uh, service that he runs in the D.C. area. For, so if you happen to be visiting, you definitely have to look up Jeff. He'll, he'll show you around some really cool places on bike, and it's really neat. So what do you actually do as policy director? I have a feeling you're involved in a whole bunch of different things. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely have, you know, my, my hands in a lot of different buckets. You know, I, I see my job as 
really making sure that we're doing good policy work at the federal level and then trying to make sure that that is also filtering down to state and local levels. Karen Whitaker, our, she, she was our vice president of government, government relations, but was recently promoted to be deputy director of the league. She does our, our lobbying on the Hill. And, you know, I, I think the first part of my job is making sure that I'm supporting her and making sure that our, our federal policy is as robust as possible. Because I, I think there's a lot of things in federal policy that, that touch on biking and bicycling safety. But then it's also being responsible for state and local policies. Um, we have our Bike Law University resources, which was that first project that I pitched to the league in 2012, which a lot of people still use and reference and use to um, make sure that their state bike laws are, are really good and continually improving them. And uh, it, it really is a useful resource to call back to as we see states kind of advancing bike policy. Um, I want to say like eight states have gone after stop as yield laws this legislative season. And it's just great to work with those states on that type of issue. We also have like things like our bicycle friendly state program where we rank states every other year now and keeping connected to the state and local advocates and what they're doing and what their states are doing is a huge part of making sure that that type of programming is effective and speaking to the needs of uh, all the advocates out there doing state and local work, which, you know, hopefully is also influencing our federal policy work so that federal policy is supporting what they're asking for at the state and local level. Fantastic. So it sounds like you're, you're sort of, you know, keeping an eye on what's happening at the national level, as well as what's happening, you know, within various states. Uh, do you get involved with uh, policy issues that are even happening at, at like the city level too? Sometimes, you know, we, we mostly engage city policy, I would, I would say, through our Bicycle Friendly Community Program. But sometimes there are specific questions that advocates have uh, that they'll reach out about. I, I don't do like a lot of local policy development, but certainly if a local advocate has a question, always happy to answer and help them to, to make sure that we're, we're able to bring that national perspective to whatever issue they're facing. And from a policy perspective, what are some of the big things that you're particularly excited about and engaged in uh, these days? Well, uh, we, we just had our National Bike Summit, so it was really exciting to have over 1,000 people attend. I think we had 500 cr congressional meetings. And the, the asks that we had as part of the summit um, were really focused on the federal transportation bill that we're expecting this year. So we had three asks, and one was more funding for transportation alternatives, which is the federal funding program that provides the majority of federal funding to biking and walking. So that's exciting because more funding is always good. That means more places to bike and walk safely. There is the Complete Streets Act, which makes all federally funded projects adhere to complete street standards and requires the federal government to create those standards. Um, and then there's the Safe Streets Act, which requires states with a certain record of pedestrian bicycle fatalities uh, to spend their Highway Safety Improvement Program funds on bicycle and pedestrian safety, which I, I think is really important because in the last decade, bicyclist fatalities have gone up 35%, pedestrian fatalities have gone up 50%, and we're, we're still struggling to get states to spend safety funding on bicycle and pedestrian safety. I think last time I checked, only 41 states spend that funding, any of that funding on bicycle and pedestrian safety, um, which is just crazy in, in the context of a decade of rising fatalities uh, for people who bike and walk. So, you know, I, I'm very hopeful that Congress will, will take those asks and put them into legislation and we'll see improvements for pedestrians and bicyclists that way. So it sounds like if I if I can summarize, it looks like we've got three main asks out there, the the trans alternative and transportation alternative uh, thing, which I, I always thought that that was a, a terrible word to uh, descriptor, the transportation alternative. We should should call it the original, <laughs> the the best alternative <laughs> or the best transportation, not the alternative transportation. Alternative to cars. The, the fun fact there is that it was named by a detractor. <laughs> so uh, it, it is it is hard to change the name of a program once it is named, uh, but it, it was not chosen by advocates. Yeah, it's so unfortunate because 
unless you you add you know an alternative to single occupancy vehicles and then i like it a lot more <laughs> so okay uh, once again that's the first one the second one is the complete streets act and then the third one is the safe streets act mm-hmm. fantastic so the feeling is that we've got some momentum happening here am i am i reading this right no, I, yeah, I think you're reading it right. You know, all, all of those asks are asks that have been uh, introduced in the past. You know, I think we're gaining sponsorships after the National Bike Summit and those successful meetings. I think the the biggest question with, with some of the things that are out there today in terms of will there be an infrastructure stimulus or what can the administration do within the administration's powers is, is are, are we asking enough? Because I, I do think our, our three asks are, are really great and will make improvements. But there's there's also a lot of other things out there that could really be game changers if we were to have an, an infrastructure stimulus. You know, I, I love the approach of the East Coast Greenway to have a really bold Greenway stimulus put out a big number, which isn't quite there for kind of the the city level bike networks or state level bike networks. You know, I, I think... Only two thirds of states have ever adopted a statewide bike plan. So we, we just don't have the planning on the ground in some of those places to come up with that big number um, in the same way the East Coast Greenway stimulus uh, came up with. I think three billion is what they estimate for their build out. So I, I think for, for state and local groups, like thinking of what could be that transformative investment if we get to the point of having an infrastructure stimulus is a really important place to think right now. Yeah. One of the biggest challenges that, that I've noticed in, you know, the decade plus that I've been engaged and involved in this is that oftentimes federal funding has so many strings attached and, you know, are so cumbersome and difficult. I mean, if if there was one thing that I would like try to to push with with our new encouraging secretary, uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, um, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, since he was a mayor, he has a little bit of that, you know, sense of getting things done and moving quickly and, and making change. Oftentimes, these federal programs nothing about them moves fast. They, and the money flows into the state from the state, you know, oftentimes to MPOs and then, you know, down to the community level. Gosh, if there were something we could do to, to move things along so that, you know, money could get, you know, allocated down to the community level, down to the city level so that they could make some quick action so that things can happen quickly like we saw during the pandemic and, and have some money behind it. Any, any thoughts or observations there? I mean, I, I know I'm being sort of a pie in the sky advocate that would just like to see things move faster. So I'll, I'll have to defer to the attorney here who also is the policy director. I know there's reasons why it takes time, but man, we, we need to move these things along quicker. So I think I'll give two concrete things and two pie in the sky things. So two concrete things, the Transportation Alternatives Enhancement Act, which was one of our three summit asks, would create more money going to the local level. So hopefully that would make it easier to implement. And there'd also be some other technical fixes that would give MPOs more authority to obligate funding. So that can make things easier. The the other technical thing is that the Buttigieg administration could probably do more to help state and local agencies get categorical exclusions for things that happen within the right of way. So when you're putting paint on pavement, you could get a categorical exclusion from the Environmental Protection Act in, in that case, because you aren't changing anything about the roadway. You aren't disturbing anything about the roadway. Um, you're, you're just putting in a bike lane. So, so those are two concrete things that could, could really happen and hopefully make, make it easier. Pie in the sky, I would love to see either FHWA or NHTSA funding be able to fund pop-up bike networks. NHTSA funding is a little bit better at funding community engagement, at public education, you know, things like helmets, 
So I, I think technically you could probably get away with funding a pop-up bike network under NHTSA funding, but I, I've never heard of it being done. And then the, the other pie in the sky is like, we, we should have programming at the federal level to kind of get that quicker on the ground change done. I, I see that as, as a core thing for traffic safety moving forward is more bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure more quickly. You know, we, we know what makes streets safer, uh, but we aren't implementing it quick enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love and really applaud the, uh, the use of, and I may not have the right term here, but a block block grant or some sort of, you know, small amount of money that can be cordoned. It doesn't have to be small, but I mean, an amount of money that can be cordoned to a community so that they can take quick action. They can do some tactical urbanism, um, to be able to demonstrate to the community because a big part of this is that we have, a fair amount of nimbyism out there and anytime the environment changes, you know, it's, it's fear inducing. There, there are legitimate fears that pop up as well as illegitimate fears and as well as uh, misinformation campaigns. But the great thing about a tactical urbanism type approach, whether it's run through a, a different program like a NHTSA or F, FHWA is, is being able to, you know, help create some community buy-in because they can actually touch it, feel it and be like, Oh, this is what you meant by a parking protected, you know, bike lane. I thought you were just gonna, you know, I thought this was another war on cars. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so we, we, we threw some acronyms around here, so let's define them. Uh, FHWA, I think I have that correct. And then also NHTSA. Can you explain those two? Sure. So uh, FHWA is the Federal Highway Administration. They administer all roadway funding from the federal government. You know, it'd be great if they weren't the Highway Administration and just Roadway Administration. Sounds like that's part of our problem. <laughs> or, or more inclusive of all, all transportation. But, you know, it, it is what it is. I, I haven't heard Congress pushing for a change. Um, and I don't know if the Buttigieg administration can make that change unilaterally unilaterally. Boy, you know what? That you, you bring up a wonderful point because what better way than to change that? I mean, I mean, there should be a federal highway administration. Absolutely. You know, because we have highways. But at the same time, that sh probably shouldn't be the body that is charged with creating people-oriented safe streets in our cities and in our communities and in our neighborhoods. Just a thought. Okay, and NHTSA. Uh, NHTSA is the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So they are much smaller than FHWA. So there's kind of the engineering and roadway building side of FHWA. And then NHTSA is kind of behavior change and vehicle safety. The, those are kind of its two buckets. All, all the fatality data that you hear reported is collected and collated by NHTSA. If you see a PSA or uh, something that tells you to, to put on a helmet or a reflective vest, um, that's that's probably NHTSA funding some way. And if you see uh, vehicle safety ratings, that's that's NHTSA as well. They are one of my most hated organizations uh, out there as a behaviorist and somebody who has been in behavior change for the last 30 years. Um, I, I look at that, many of their programs, and obviously there's many folks there that are doing some great work, but many of the things that they do end up becoming victim blaming and really not focusing on the key thing that we need to focus on, which is slowing down motor vehicles and making our streets safer. The Dutch example is one of my favorite examples because, you know, it blows people away from North America when they see the images and when they visit um, the Netherlands and, and they're like, well, why isn't everybody wearing helmets? And it's like, uh, because they don't need to. <laughs> it's like wearing a helmet there would be just like us wearing a helmet or wrapping ourselves in bubble wrap when we walk down the street. Is there a chance that we could be injured and killed? Yeah, there is. But at the same time, 
it's minuscule in terms of the overall benefit from a public health perspective of the benefit of, of getting out there and moving. So one of the things that you also mentioned in there, we don't need to go into helmets. <laughs> one of the things that you mentioned there was the Environmental Protection Act and that concept of, hey, if we're just coming in, we're just making some tweaks to the existing right of way. You know, we shouldn't have to necessarily do that. It, it's really interesting because a few years ago in San Francisco, uh, you know, some of the, the haters basically were using, and, and this happens elsewhere too, were using the Environmental Protection Act as a hammer, as a bludgeon to, you know, basically stall out their projects there. And in San Francisco, I can't remember how long, it may have been a couple of years, you may know that better than I, but they they you know, we're using that as an excuse. And fortunately that got thrown out and, you know, and, and hopefully we never see that sort of ridiculousness happen again. Yeah. And I think that was an interesting case. And I don't know if it was the national environmental protection act or the California environmental protection act in, in that issue, but California did change its approach to its California environmental protection act. So it, it used to look at the impact of something like a development or a bike lane on traffic delay because delayed traffic produces more greenhouse gases because cars are sitting there burning fuel. So if you put in a, a bike lane that slowed down cars, that could be bad for the environment. That makes the assumption that the human who is a rational uh, being decides to torture themselves and sit in that traffic. But in reality, what we know is that if it slows down enough, they find a different way and maybe even try if there's a safer, quote unquote, alternatives to the single occupancy vehicle taking transit or, oh, look at that brand new protected bike lane there and everybody's smiling in it. Maybe I should do that. My trip's only four miles anyways. <laughs> so yeah. their, their assumption was that that slowing down of and that quote unquote traffic congestion was permanent. Absolutely. So, I mean, to, to California's credit, they, they changed how they approach their environmental analysis. So now they look at the vehicle miles traveled associated with a project. So if you put in a protected bike lane, the, the assumption you have is that people are going to make that choice to get out of that traffic and, and get into that protected bike lane and switch to the more environmentally friendly mode of transportation. So, so now they've made it easier to, to make those choices, make denser development choices and make more protected bike lanes, more transit investments, that type of thing. But in other states, you still see that argument that traffic delay is a big problem for greenhouse gas emissions. I, I know it's come up in Maryland where the governor is proposing some highway expansions around the DC area. And they're saying how great it'll be for the environment because cars will move more quickly and there will be fewer emissions. And it's it's a deeply flawed uh, approach, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And we, we've talked about induced demand on this podcast many, many times. And the bottom line is, is that if you're just adding additional lane capacity for motor vehicles, it will quickly fill up. And then humans being humans, if, if it gets to the point of being particularly irksome, you find a different way. You, you, you choose a different route or you choose a different mode. And so there's all sorts of things that can be done. You know, one of the policy things that I think would be really, really interesting is, and you mentioned something, you mentioned vehicle miles travel or VMT, is, is shifting the way that we fund roadways away from a, a gas tax, a per gallon gas tax. But the vehicle mile traveled uh, charging mechanism is interesting and I think really the direction we need to go at the federal level as well as at the local level. And it also kind of, depending on the technology, it also might open up the door for other related types of policies, such as congestion pricing, like uh, they did in, in London and in several cities in, in Sweden. And I believe New York is going to get the green light to be able to do that. Can you speak to that at, at all? Is that something that's hit your radar screen? It, it's not something that the, the league has taken a position on as far as I know. 
Um, but certainly it's something that's been discussed for a long time. I know Oregon has had a pilot for a number of years. And, you know, certainly it, it seems promising. You know, uh, there's, there's kind of that saying, if you want less of something, tax it. So if you want fewer vehicle miles traveled, tax vehicle miles traveled and, and you'll get fewer. The gas tax and potentially a, a VMT tax, I, I worry that it is kind of marketed as this user fee where users of the roadway, the, the vehicle users should get something back for it and, and other users shouldn't get part of it. The approach of a lot of other countries is to tax vehicle travel very heavily and put that money in the general fund and fund what they want with that funding uh, because vehicle travel is, is not as much of a good in itself as all the other ways that people can get around. That's why places like Europe have much higher investment in public transportation, biking, and walking networks is because they don't dedicate their user fees to uh, their users. They, they use those user fees to help everyone. So, you know, I, I'm a little concerned about that, that ongoing narrative, but generally I, I think vehicles and miles traveled taxes and congestion fees and taxes uh, are, are a good policy moving forward. When we return after this very brief break, Ken shares his take on the recently introduced E-Bike Act, the introduction of electric cargo bike freight logistics incentives, and the MUTCD rewrite currently underway. But before we roll into those topics, please allow me a moment for one quick request. If you're enjoying the Active Towns podcast, please consider sharing it within your network. Word of mouth is a wonderful way to grow the audience and provide additional momentum to the culture of activity movement. Okay, that's all for this short intermission. Let's get our conversation with Ken rolling once again. One thing that came to mind is that from a human behavior perspective, when we think about the carrot and the stick, the balancing that out is yeah from a from a encouragement of mode shift can we can you know sort as you mentioned you know we can make it just a little bit less attractive to drive that single occupancy vehicle everywhere you know have things like congestion pricing so that's the that's kind of the the stick you know that's the on the in the carrot and stick analogy that's kind of the stick the, on a carrot side are, are some of the incentives. How do we incentivize? What are some of the policies that you are seeing bubbling up or should be bubbling up at the state, at the national, even at the local level that are good carrots, good incentives? My personal belief is that the best carrot is a safe, connected network where somebody can get to places without ever feeling threatened by a, a motor vehicle. I think that goes without saying. So I, the assumption is going to be that we we have waved our magic wand and we have a we have built out a complete and connected and cohesive all ages and abilities network. But we need to we need to work on that human behavior side. We need to incentivize. What sort of policies do you think would resonate? And what what sort of policies do you think would actually resonate with politicians? in our current polarized environment? So, I mean, I, I think it's it was great to see the reaction to the e-bike act that was introduced at the federal level, which would provide a tax subsidy for the purchase of e-bikes. I've seen some very valid criticism of that. Um, by using a tax subsidy, you are, are giving cash to people at tax time, not when they're making the purchase. And for people with lower incomes, um, that might make it harder for them to access that subsidy. So what you're really saying is it, it, it's not going to be that valuable to probably the people that, that could really benefit this yeah. the most. So a different type of incentive, but along those lines of making it easier for people to get on bikes. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I personally, I, I love that it's e-bikes, but I would love to see bikes in there too. Um, you know, bikes... A good bike is not an insignificant purchase for a lot of people. Access to bikes is a struggle for, for some people. So, you know, making an e-bike only is great in terms of incentivizing one of the, the futures of transportation. 
Um, but the bike is an amazing technology and, and deserves that type of, of push too, I think. We, we've kind of seen the, the related, the Bicycle Commuter Benefit Act uh, was introduced by Representative Earl Blumenauer recently. That would provide a workplace-based tax subsidy for commuting expenses uh, with a bike or e-bike or bike share. Another great policy, another great way to help people decide to bike. Currently, we're going maybe $3 billion of tax revenue from parking commuter benefits, uh, which is more than we spend on biking and walking, um, <laughs> which is, is again, hard, hard to have that, that incentive when, when that price structure is like that. So, you know, we're, we're making some moves and I just recently saw a bill in California that would be an e-bike subsidy and 35% of it would be dedicated to people with lower incomes. So hopefully there's, there's that thought that is in policymakers' minds um, in terms of how we make sure it's reaching everyone and not just the type of people who tend to get commuter benefits through work or have the means to purchase an e-bike now and get a tax rebate later. Yeah. And I wonder too, you know, kind of thinking along these lines with incentives and, and, and encouraging behavior, whether there's an opportunity to, to, again, maybe not at this, at the national or state level, maybe this is a community uh, level or a city level type of encouragement is to, you know, encourage a lot of the livery services and the, and the, um, uh, you know, like the, the UPSs of the world and the, the Amazon deliveries of the world and the FedEx deliveries of the world, the city streets really are pushed to the limit as it is. And then you shove a big old truck in there. And so I know many European cities are, are shifting a lot of that freight delivery to these uh, larger format electric cargo bikes and things of that nature. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a great idea. And really, uh, what I would love to see is, is more cities uh, making sure that they're approaching those companies with that idea and making sure that they're making it easy for those companies to do that shift. You know, you could also do a little bit of the stick if you wanted to really up your ticketing of delivery vehicles in bike lanes as an incentive to get them to the, the table to talk, talk about using e-bikes for freight delivery. But I think cities and, and local advocates approaching those companies um, with that idea and with a mindset of partnership could be very fruitful. Within the last couple of months, I, I spoke to, uh, I think it was FedEx who was trying to do a pilot in four cities in the U.S. So, so they, they are looking at it, and I, I think cities and advocates asking for it and showing that there is demand and a willingness to partner is going to be really key to getting those companies to, to do it in the U.S., yeah. Yeah. I mean, even the U.S. Postal Service, uh, you know, one of the coolest things that you'll you'll notice whenever you visit many of these countries in, in northern Europe is that most of their postal delivery at the residential level and and many of the, the businesses in, in the downtown, the dense downtown areas are done by bike. It's just it, it's not that difficult. And if you're not if you're not receiving a, you know, a new couch for your living room, it's most of it's probably deliverable by, <laughs> yeah. you know, one of these services. Yeah. I mean, I was really excited to see the new postal service vehicle and how it was designed with a, a low hood height that's safer for, for pedestrians and bicyclists and really good visibility, which is safer for pedestrians and bicyclists. But, but maybe I wasn't thinking bold enough and I should have been asking myself, why isn't that a cargo bike? Just, just touch base with me. I'll, I'll keep you on the bold side. <laughs> so let's talk about speed because speed is a, a is very much a, a part of what our biggest challenge here in North America is. Um, we're addicted to speed. You know, when we get behind the uh, wheel of a, a motor vehicle, we really expect and anticipate that we're going to be able to get from point A to point B as fast as possible, and we're you know, irritated and annoyed when anything, you know, gets in our way or slows us down. How do we, how do we work on that from a policy perspective of 
you know, creating safer speeds for everyone within our cities, our communities, our neighborhoods, and, you know, even at the statewide level. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's hard because there has been such a cultural investment in, in speed. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, there's a massive pushback to the national, the na- nationwide speed limit of 55 uh, decades ago. Um, we see many states raising highway speed limits year after year. Um, even with really strong evidence that that's resulting in more fatalities. I, I think at, at the local level, the, the key is to really find uh, the, the neighborhood advocates. We, we know there's a lot of neighborhoods that don't want speed in them and don't want speeding in them. It explains in part some of the suburban design that some people really like because there's not through traffic and there's less speeding traffic. So really finding uh, neighborhoods that support lower speeds I think is a really good place to look. And then for a lot of bike infrastructure on some of the the higher speed arterials, it might be looking at traffic volumes and the ability to take a lane of traffic away while maintaining the the same sort of operational efficiency where you aren't focusing on speed, you're, you're focusing on improving the facility and reducing conflicts between people biking and people driving. So they don't feel like they're, they're held up by a bicyclist. The bicyclist has their space. The, the person driving has their space and there's not that inherent conflict because we provided that that separated space. Yeah, which is has been a, a proven approach, um, you know, in northern European countries and especially in uh, in Denmark and in the Netherlands that uh, that works, you know, create that separated space and uh, you still need to worry about, and, and, and I, I'm concerned when we, I look at public health from a, a, a broader perspective, we need to be looking at a complete network and a complete community approach to these things and simply ensuring that we, quote unquote, have complete streets and we have bike and ped- pedestrian facilities, safe bike and pedestrian facilities along major arterials and major corridors. Yes, we do need to do that, but it's not sufficient. Um, and, you know, one of the biggest challenges that we have with with doing that is it's still not going to get us from a behavior change perspective to massive participation levels because those are still not comfortable environments. If you've got high-speed multi-lane motor vehicle roadways, and even if you have a separated path, even if you have a parking protected, you know, area there, it's just nowhere near as comfortable as uh, other options that could be in place where it's traffic calm, there's lower speeds, there's less exposure to volumes of motor vehicles, and I'm not just thinking about safety. I'm also thinking about public health. I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the emissions that people are breathing, the micro uh, particles that they're getting from motor vehicle tires that are cancer causing. These are all things that I think that we need to take into, into account. It's stuff that the Dutch thought about decades ago and is, is actually incorporated in their Crow manual. And uh, so now that we're talking about manuals, I just mentioned the Crow manual, and I'll be sure to provide a, a, a link in the show notes for that. Let's talk about the MUTCD because we are in a process of reimagining the MUTCD. What the heck is the MUTCD? It is the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, and it has been around for around 100 years probably. And it it specifies how wide a paint marking is for, for a travel lane, and if that's a different or the same width for a bike lane. It specifies what a, a signal looks like, and one of the, the recent innovations has been the existence of bicycle signals in the MUTCD. So it's, it's kind of the Lego building blocks that construct our built environment on roadways. Basically, it's the manual that they turn to. When I say they, I mean those folks who are building our streets or telling us we can or can't do something in a particular way. And it's a guidance manual. And I mean, it's it's like comprehensive. It's everything from the signs to, as you mentioned, the paint, the stencils on the ground and what you see in, at the lights. I mean, it's it's a massive, massive beast 
once every 10 years, right? It gets... The goal, I think, is once every five years, but the practice is once every 10 years. It gets an update. And the clean, corrected, proposed text right now runs to about 700 pages. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's in in the range of uh, the high cost of free parking by uh, Donald Shoup. There you go. I like that manual better. Yeah, that's a better read. <laughs> so... This is important, though. I mean, we're joking around a little bit about this, but I mean, oftentimes it's used as an excuse to say, you know, no, you can't do that. It's not in the MUTCD. Yeah. You know, it it is something that uh, engineers find useful to fall back on when they don't want to do something. You know, I I think in many ways, uh, pedestrians have it worse than bicyclists. Uh, Bicyclists, since they've been organized uh, around groups like the League of American Bicyclists for for years. There's there's this organization called the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which is a private organization which advises FHWA and goes back to like the 1920s. So we have representatives on that committee as the League of American Bicyclists, and it has a bicycle technical committee. So we've been sponsors of that for at least a decade. And they've been pushing bicycle issues forward. But pedestrians don't have their own technical committee. They don't have that kind of structure. So we see things like if you want a crosswalk, you have to get a crosswalk warrant. And if you don't meet the the warrant for people crossing at that area enough, um, you can meet the warrant of people getting hit by cars at that area enough. But if you don't have five people getting hit by cars at that crossing in the last year, the engineer can say, sorry, can't can't do a crosswalk for you. You don't have enough people getting hit by cars, um, which which is just kind of insane and uh, a big example of, of why we have unsafe systems. Yeah, it, it can be mind boggling. Now, I know APBP, um, I guess we have to <laughs> define that uh, uh, acronym as well. That's the Association of Pedestrian and bicycle professionals. Okay, very good. Excellent. Pedestrian and bicycle professionals. I know they're engaged in it. I think they had a session uh, just before we uh, uh, logged on here today to have this conversation. And so they're working through this as well. So hopefully that pedestrian side, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I noticed some of the names and recognize some of the names that are involved in this. I know that they're they're engaged and, and maybe... Uh, Mike McGinn, who's you know from the Seattle area, there your former mayor up there. He's he's now the executive director for America Walk. So hopefully he uh, can you know maybe that organization can be you know kind of spearheading for the future, being part of you know making sure that pedestrian interests are also you know really taken into consideration. Yeah, and and I think America Walks has really done a, a great job of talking about the MUTCD this year. I feel like their their branding is manual. Uh, that like prevents terrific community design <laughs> and and they're asking for people to to share their stories of where they've been told by an engineer uh you know you don't have enough people being hit to get a crosswalk and and we we had a, a great session at the national bike summit about the MUTCD uh with Blair Tompton one of our representatives to the national committee and Dong Ho Chang who is a transportation engineer for the city of Seattle who the city of Seattle changed their version of the MUTCD so that they can strip a crosswalk when they want to rather than when enough people are getting hit. And, and that's the type of thing that Secretary Buttigieg and the Biden administration can do when they follow through on the notice of proposed amendment that is open for comments until May 14th. Yeah. Yeah. Huge shout out to for that session. Uh, amazing. You know, I, I absolutely love Dong Ho and, uh, you know, it was great to it was the first time I, you know, quote unquote, met in air quotes <laughs> via, you know, the, the interwebs Blair. And of course, I've known Rock Miller for many, many years. And so uh, great to, to see that happening. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think it's a very exciting time. I think the, you know, national organizations and a lot of the state and local organizations are really keyed up to do some great things right now. Yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of, lot of energy and a lot of it's really positive. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you're excited to share with the audience here today? Yeah, sure. There's, there's a few things that I'd love to share. So 
I've been very happy to be able to work with the Transportation Equity Caucus over the last year. That is headed by Dara Baldwin, who is with the National Center on Disability Rights, um, and Axel Santana, who's from PolicyLink. Um, they're, they're the co-chairs of that caucus. And through that, we've really been looking at NHTSA funding and how it goes to in enforcement and kind of those PSAs that are victim blaming and trying to shine a light on that and engage Congress on that so that we can get better practices there. And it was really exciting just the, the week before the summit, the House Committee on Transportation Infrastructure held a hearing on traffic enforcement and inequity that, that talked about some of that funding and some of that programming. If you're listening, you're, you're probably in a state that doesn't use this tiny little $7.5 million program. As with many federal programs called Section 1906, uh, which is the Racial Profiling Prohibition Grant Program. And it provides funding to states to collect data on the racial demographics of their traffic stops and analyze that data and then improve practices so they are getting fewer racial disparities uh, with more effective traffic enforcement. And to me, it's crazy that it's so small. It, that is half the size of NHTSA funding for bicycle and pedestrian safety grants. And, and it's a huge issue. So it was great to have Congress have a hearing about that and really engage with that issue. And hopefully that means we're going to see more funding and, and program changes around that. So that's that's one of the things that has been really exciting in the last year to, to work on. Before we, we shift over to the last question, I do want to give a shout out to uh, to NACTO because when we were talking about the guides, you know, I mentioned the Crow Manual and, and we were talking about the MUTCD, but, you know, NACTO has just been doing a fantastic job. The National Association for City Transportation Officials and the, the guides that they uh, have been working on over the past decade plus have really helped us move along and uh, and and oftentimes they come up with guidance that it's it's much more you know earth breaking you know earth shattering and groundbreaking than necessarily what we're seeing in you know the the various federal um you know manuals and guidance books so i just needed to give that shout out 100 percent agree i i also want to give them a shout out last year or the year before recently they, they joined the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices. So that really helped them get engaged in that MUTCD conversation earlier um, and be part of those conversations at this private body that is influential in what FHWA adopts. Um, you know, AASHTO, the American Association of State Highway and Transportation Officials, is, is a big player there. ITE, the Institute of Transportation Engineers, is, is a big player there. Um, so it was great to have NACTO join that table and give kind of the advocates like the league who have been part of that for a decade uh, a stronger voice in that institution. But, you know, I also want to say like for America Walks and, and other people who want to be engaged there or like why we don't have a pedestrian technical committee, um, that's because there's that financial barrier of, of joining this private organization that has influence over our technical standards. So it was great that NACTO was able to do it, and I'm really excited to have them there. But it's also a little troubling that to, to get a pedestrian technical committee, maybe we need America Walks or APPP or, or another organization to, to put money on the table to become involved, which I, I don't think we, we should be making pedestrian safety contingent on groups being able to, to pay in. Yeah, or we do what we've done with many of our organizations is we find a way to blend our pedestrian representation and our bike representation into a non-motorized type of uh, representation so that uh, we don't have these fragmented silos that are just focused on this, you know, from an active mobility perspective. That's a whole nother conversation, but yeah. And and, uh, you know, Secretary Buttigieg and the Biden administration could also choose to provide more FHWA capacity around the MUTCD going forward so that more stakeholder groups are engaged. And, and that can help bring in groups like America Walks. It could help bring in uh, equity groups that haven't really had a voice at the table in a group that is is pretty dominated by older engineers. Well said. Yeah, well said. We hear liability th thrown out a lot, especially in reference to, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. Maybe the guides don't exactly say. And 
and and the word liability is is thrown out there. I mean, I, I realize that's probably not your you know particular area of uh, professional uh, expertise, but you are an attorney. So what the heck? I'm going to throw it out there. What about this use that uh, many of the haters use or NIMBYs that just don't want this and and, and liability gets thrown out there? Yeah, I'd say so. Bill Nesper, our executive director, one of his like main quotes for me is probably, "I'm not a blank lawyer." Um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think it is really mostly a scare tactic. Uh, a lot of states have kind of liability shields for traffic engineers and municipalities in terms of design of the roadways. So you know, those liability shields often are, are going to be pretty effective, even if it's not in the manual. It, it is important to to bring that back to the manual on uniform traffic control devices because that manual doesn't have a lot of great bike infrastructure or a lot of great pedestrian infrastructure. So that helps engineers that don't want to do things get away with not doing them and then be shielded by the manual, which doesn't have that. And sometimes in the National Committee on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, You'll even hear the argument from an engineer that we need to say it this way so that it's an effective liability shield to, to have this standard in the manual. So I, I think for, for advocates, we, we shouldn't accept the scare of liability. There certainly are some successful liability lawsuits out there for street design, but it's generally known dangerous conditions that are not fixed rather than a particular design that wasn't in a manual. And of course, I probably uh, um, are more aligned with the, the belief that uh, maybe we should be, you know, looking at malpractice <laughs> with some of these engineers when they continue to design streets that are incredibly dangerous, uh, you know, for anyone who's not in a motor vehicle, which uh, now that I said that dangerous by design was just released by Smart Growth America and the National Complete Streets Coalition, I think is yep. is who puts that together. So my last question for you, and it's the same last question that I give every guest of the Active Towns podcast, and that is what advice do you have for our audience, individuals in our audience that are inspired by our discussions and especially the, the detailed stuff about the, the manuals and stuff, but what advice would you have for them? Because if they're inspired, they want to make a difference in their community. They're just getting started. What, what advice would you have for them? Um, I, I mean, I, I think the, the most important thing is connecting with other people and, and finding those other people who are interested and passionate about making this change. You know, I, I think particularly at the local level, as it gets more to what is happening in your community, if you can connect biking and walking improvements and the mobility of people to how people experience your community and your community's values, it's going to go a long way. You know, on the technical side, I, I love digging into my city's planning documents and their neighborhood plans and all of their little policies. And it's great to see, you know, when, when I've been biking a street and I'm, and I'm like, oh, why isn't there a, a bike lane here? I wish there was better access to the river from this neighborhood. And then I look and I see a decade ago, they did a, a neighborhood plan and the neighbor said, neighborhood said, we should have better access to the riverfront. And then that clicks the, the advocacy gear of like, oh, we need to propose that. I need to reach out to the neighborhood group there and ask, how can I help you uh, do this thing that you've already identified as something you want to do? So getting down to the root of your, your uh, advice there, I, th I think I heard you say, get out and ride your bike. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, my, my, one of my goals for 2021 is to bike every mile of road in, in the city of Roanoke. And in the back of my mind as I'm doing that is just how do we make this better for biking? Fantastic. Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you here today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Active Towns podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me, John. It's, it's been great to talk to you. 
Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 67 of the Active Towns podcast. Congratulations, you made it to the end of a wide-ranging policy discussion, and I sincerely hope you have emerged with a better understanding of the federal, state, and local landscape. I'm in awe and so incredibly appreciative of people like Ken on the front lines tirelessly working to advance policies that help to make our communities safer and more inviting for all ages and abilities to walk and bike more often to more meaningful destinations to meet our daily needs. I've included some photos and reference links that Ken passed along on the landing page for this episode out on our website, and the show notes for the episode will also include the reference links. As a quick reminder, please don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any thoughts on future guests or topics. My email is john, that's J-O-H-N, at activetowns, again, that's plural, dot O-R-G. It's always wonderful to hear from y'all. And finally, if you're finding value in this podcast, please consider helping me out by making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. As a very small nonprofit, your donations really do make a big difference in my ability to deliver this content. I've made doing so quite easy. Just head over to activetowns.org and click on that blue donate link in the top right corner of the page. Thank you so much. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.